Welcome to the Griffin Podcast from Beach Hall School, Riyadh. This is the podcast to connect you with the school at a deeper level to find out what's going on and what's happening in the future. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Claire Lation. She's the Director of Learning and Teaching at Beach Hall School. I'm going to ask her what that role actually means, but I also quiz her on her own background and how she feels that helps her with the work she's doing today. So come with me as we step into school and speak right now to Dr. Claire Lation. Claire, welcome to this episode of the podcast. Thank you for being here. How are you today? Morning, Simon. I'm very well, thank you. Delighted to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And we're recording this actually during the break at the moment. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in school, because it's it's a fairly empty school today, isn't it? It's empty because we're currently in Ramadan season. Our children and our teaching staff went on holiday yesterday, so we just have tours going on in the school today. Must be very strange being in school when there aren't any children there. It is, although we do have some little children uh, because the prospective um, joiners. But yes, it is very different. Of course, there's, there's no noise and fun and joy when the children are missing. No, of course, of course. Claire, tell us a bit about, uh, about your own background. Wh- where, where did you grow up? Where did you go to school yourself? Well, my father was in the army and so I moved around a fair bit as a child. I lived in several places in England. I also lived in Northern Ireland, in Wales, and we also did three years in Germany. So I was very fortunate in my primary years to have experienced several schools, actually. I think maybe eight, eight schools or so I I moved around to. And then when I went to high school, we were based in in Wales. It's interesting you mentioned you're very fortunate to have gone through that because a, a lot of parents might feel like they're putting their children through a lot of trauma and upheaval if they move them from one school to another. But clearly you see the benefits in that. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, definitely. During my doctorate programme, actually, I studied a module in international education and there's a big body of literature that looks at, you know, the displacement of international students. And although as a forces child, I wouldn't have identified myself in that category, certainly there are some similarities. For me, it was always very positive. I think one of the benefits that we had um, in the forces is that you move around as a unit. And so we always had a sense of family, people that we knew on the camp who joined us. So it wasn't like me or my siblings completely by ourselves going to a new country. Um, we always had people around us. So there was that sense of familiarity. I think it gives children a lot of skills to be able to to move. You have to be able to be very adaptable. You have to be culturally aware. You have to know how to make friends quickly to strike up conversations. And that can be challenging. If I think back to myself as a child, I was very, very shy. No one can believe that now, but um, I think that that kind of helped bring me out of my shell. So yeah, it can be it can be challenging, of course, but I just think that if you have um, you know a good good family around you, if you a nice group of friends, that you know you can, you can get through many things in life. No, of course. And do you think that that international awareness that you had when you were younger has contributed to you? I was going to say moving around the world now. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't actually know which countries you've lived in. I, I know that you were in the UAE beforehand. Um, and I'm going to ask you a little bit, little bit about that shortly. Yeah. But do you think that that's given you more of a sort of global awareness in that case? Yes, I think so. Um, you know, I went to school mainly with um, British children, but also some American forces as well. Um, and of course, we met local children, like local German children um, down at the lake. So it's not as international, I would say, as some of the schools that I've seen, let's say, in the UAE that are very multicultural um, and very diverse. 
but yeah, I do think that it's um, it's molded me into the type of person that I am. You know, I'm very open minded. I love meeting new people, like discovering more about their culture and their backgrounds. And um, yeah, I think it's also given me that travel bug as well. Every couple of years, I I move house. I have to move house or move job or move position within the company. It's given me itchy feet, I would say. Now, you've got a role there as director of learning and teaching. Tell me a little bit about what that actually means. So my role is a whole school role. Um, It's kind of broken down into three parts, I would say. I oversee the taught curriculum. So in that capacity, I'm looking at the quality of teaching and the learning that's going on making sure that every child is being extended and pushed to reach their full potential. Um, So some of the ways that we do that is that we take our baseline data at the start, and it's not just numerical data, it's looking at children's dispositions, it's looking at um, how they interact in groups. It's a very comprehensive curriculum that we have here. It's not just looking at subject learning goals, it's looking at developing personal characteristics as well as part of the Fieldworks programme and just making sure that our teachers are constantly on top of their pedagogy, that they're risk-taking, that they're trying out new things. We have a PD every week and we encourage staff to share um, best practice with each with each other. So that's the sort of the talk curriculum, making sure that there's always really great teaching and learning going on, that children are happy and that they're thriving and that colleagues get the support that they need to be the very best that they can be. Then um, I oversee the written curriculum. So the written curriculum is just making sure that what's in the curriculum documentation is being um, fulfilled. Now, that doesn't mean that we cover absolutely everything, um, but it's that teachers are aware that, you know, there are certain, I suppose, core elements that need to be taught in any of the subject areas in order to prepare children for the next stages in learning. And of course, Because we are an inclusive school, we have children who within a given year group are at different levels. So we have some children who are actually exceeding um, year group expectations. We have some children who are working towards and we have children who are at expectations as we would in in any school, actually. Um, So that's the, the written component. And that's important, particularly when we move towards inspections. Inspectors like to see that you know, what is written in the curriculum is being um, taught with fidelity um, so that parents have a confidence there as well that what they're signing up for is um, is worthwhile, is, you know. And then also I look at the assess curriculum. So making sure that the rubrics that we have, which are actually provided by Fieldworks um, for our early years children, our primary children and middle years children, that teachers know how to use them, that they moderate them, and that children themselves are participators in in their own assessment. So we have a big focus on assessment for learning, children having the language of learning, reflecting um, on their own development, target setting, you know, all of these things that a lot of schools will do. There's nothing really unique in that sense, but just making sure that you know everybody knows what they have to do in terms of curriculum and that everybody is being pushed um, to fulfil their potential. Awesome. Let me just quiz you on a couple of things there. You mentioned right at the start of that, and that was a great answer, by the way, you mentioned at the start of that about how the children interact as groups. Yes. How do you go about actually monitoring that in the first place without it being a little bit sort of big brother-like? It's a good question. All of the teachers here, um, we say that their key role is to be a facilitator. And as part of group work, of course, there are conflicts. But we teach children, as we even say with adults themselves, that conflict is a way to learn. 
um, that sometimes you will butt heads and you will have differences of opinion, but it's how we manage and we resolve that. So we kind of take everything as a learning opportunity. Now, that's not to say that sometimes a teacher might have to say, right, maybe it's best today that you just separate. Of course, sometimes that is the best approach, but it's looking at looking at strategies. How can we overcome um, any issues that we have? And also then to highlight this particular group were working really well. What were they doing that was so effective and what can we learn from that? So the teacher is there to kind of prompt and support the the children. And they're pretty good. I mean, they know themselves, um, actually, even the youngest ones that, you know, I know I need to maybe be a little bit more careful, let's say, um, with how I say certain things, particularly if I'm working with this particular student. And we have a culture as well where we mix the children up in groups. So they don't always work with the same children. They have opportunities to work with everybody in the class. And we also have uh, cross-grade um, opportunities as well. So on some of our special days, let's say, we'll have some of our older children who take a more more of a leadership role and support our younger learners in a, in a given task that, that we've provided. Okay, I see. No, I've got it. And the other thing you mentioned was pedagogy, which is a word that some schools do talk about. And some of the people listening to this might understand what that is, but other people might think to themselves, gosh, I've never even heard that word before. Tell us a bit more about what that actually is. I suppose that how I tend to think of it is, is a belief in how you think that children learn and how they learn best. And then it's the methods and the strategies that you use as a teacher um, to support children in their learning. Um, so let's take the Fieldworks um, pedagogy, it's based on the constructivist model. So this is an idea that when children are active in their own learning, when children are given the onus to lead, to make decisions and to guide themselves, um, that they actually benefit more than if they're being um, directed. Now, this is the Fieldworks philosophy, but of course there are times as practitioners that you say actually um, it might be better if I give an input here as a teacher. Teachers should, I don't believe, should ever be afraid of being an expert in the class. There is a movement um, among many schools that, you know, um, the teacher isn't the this the sage. They're not the, the be-all and end-all of knowledge, which is true. But also you do have expertise as a teacher and as an adult and that you should um, be able to impart that. Um, so it's about striking striking that balance, I would say really interesting to hear that because I've never really thought so much about about the way that children learn and about the way that teachers teach and and, and I guess if you think about teaching from a very Dickensian sort of time then the idea of of teaching is very much just teaching facts wasn't it whereas yeah. these days it's much more about understanding the, the the best ways that children learn and of course different children learn in different ways as well teaching is a much more complex science that, that, than, than I ever realised, actually, isn't it? Oh, it really is. I mean, it's both an art and a science. And now um, many teachers um, and school leaders, their, their practice is being driven by um, developments in brain research, you know, how children, um, their neurons are fired, how they make connections. Um, and actually the Fieldworks programme, which we've adopted at our school, one of the big things that they say that has informed their design is neuroscientific research. Um, so the idea is that um, children, when they're engaged and they're active um, and they have a chance to revisit their learning and they make connections across and between different subjects, that will actually um, improve their learning because they're able to see patterns, make connections, and actually it 
remains in them because they are able to make that connection and it's not just about regurgitating facts. Of course, there is there is always a point that you need knowledge. We can't abandon knowledge. But yeah, it's that understanding about what we do with the knowledge and then the application, which is really important. So at our school, we look at all three of those components. The knowledge, yes, you do need to have a certain amount of knowledge, but it's your understanding of that knowledge, making sure that um, you fully understood because sometimes as teachers we teach a concept and we think oh great they've understood it they come back the next day and you're like oh no they didn't actually they've misunderstood um, and so by allowing them to question and to um, apply in different situations you can see actually whether they really fully have understood a concept or not oh I see I see now Claire on the school's website uh, I, I was doing a bit of snooping around before this recording and, and, and I could see on there that you've got a doctorate in early years and gifted and talented education. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, well, a gifted and talented education is a real um, interest of mine. I never really heard of it, actually, until I started teaching. Um, and I was interested, like, what do we mean by by the notion of, of gifted and talented? Um, is it the savants, let's say, like Rain Man, which is kind of what my initial understanding was. It's something that you're born with and, it, you know, it's there with you for life. So this was my initial um, understanding. And actually, I, I studied this for my master's thesis as well. Um, so I wanted to explore that a little bit more. And then I came across the works of um, Renzulli and uh, Sally Rice and um, Sternberg. These are all American um, psychologists who actually broaden my understanding of, of what it means to be uh, gifted and talented. And they say that there's a spectrum, that you can be uh, gifted in, in different ways, that you can learn certain skills, that you have to have, you know, self-motivation, you have to be driven, intrinsically motivated, and you're not always necessarily gifted in, in a particular area. So this really broadened my understanding. And I looked at gifted and talented in secondary schools at the time, and then when I came to my master's, um, I'd moved into primary um, and early years at that stage of my career. And so I was interested in what does this look like in the early years? And I wanted to look at the notion of play, um, like what is play? And can play be supportive for children who are what I called more able um, and, and talented. So, and yes, through my research, um, I found that the teachers that I worked with anyway, they felt that yes, play was um, an effective medium to support um, children who are more able and talented. And by that, which is typically, we t if I think about academics, they tend to be um, more precocious, they use more advanced vocabulary, tend to be more very inquisitive, have very particular interests. But then it's not just about academics, it's also about physical ability, musical ability, artistic, so a whole range there. And then I didn't investigate this too much, but there's a whole big body of literature looking at children who, um, who are potentially very able, very talented, and yet who underachieve, um, either because... Well, for many factors, I suppose, maybe they don't have that intrinsic motivation. Maybe the curriculum isn't geared towards their interests and their likes. Maybe it's relationship problems that they have with the teacher or their peers. So there's a whole, there's a whole range of, of, um, of understandings about what this means. But yeah, so 
this is this was my um, study and came to the conclusion that yes, play is an effective medium for more able children, but also there was an understanding that they also need something more than just play, that they also can, um, let's say, do tasks which are geared towards older children as well. Claire, it strikes me that you enjoy learning yourself. Is that true? I do. I mean, I always say that if you're going to be in education that, you know, we should, it's not just a tagline that we all say lifelong learners, you have to, you have to really believe that. And the children have to see in you that you have passion and that you should never be afraid to say, I don't know something or let me find out about that or actually even to revisit what you believe. You know, I I like reading, I like watching TED Talks and uh, going to conferences and learning what people say because you know, it can challenge your can challenge your own ideas about things, can make you revisit your assumptions. And I think that's important that you never just get stuck and say this is the best way. Because if you do that, actually, you could be uh, limiting yourself. But also if you're working with children, some of your beliefs and ideas can actually put limits on, on them. Give me an example of that. I mean, how could a limit be placed on a child from what something that a teacher is saying? So I'll go to the early years, for example. Um, <laughs> some people say in early years, children, they, early years children, they should not um, be given uh, worksheet tasks. They should not be given um, tasks which, um, let's say, which don't use manipulatives because, it, and that require more abstract thinking. So this is a belief and it's a developmental model. So if you have a child who is capable of more abstract thinking or a child who is capable of, let's say, sitting independently and completing a worksheet, which they enjoy, um, not just that the whole class is being given. Uh, if you have that belief that, no, this is the wrong approach, that child's not going to benefit, it's wrong, they're not developmentally ready, then you actually could be placing limitations on on something which they themselves enjoy and that they would choose to do. And and could be preventing them actually from expanding their horizons. Um, so it's not to say that that those points of view are wrong per se. I mean, we would never be advocating for worksheets across um, an entire KG class, but sometimes I think that we have to use our professional judgment and say, well, actually, for this particular child, this approach might might be best. I see, I see. Gosh, there's so much more to this than I ever realised. <laughs> Um, now, Claire, given the fact that you've lived in the UAE and now you're in Riyadh, tell us about some of the differences between the two different places. Well, I lived in the UAE for many, many years, I think maybe 14, 15 years. And I arrived in the UAE in 2006. And at that time, I would say it was um, it was like an emerging place, particularly on the international school front. Um, and at the time, they didn't have school-wide inspections. There was no such thing as ADEC, Abu Dhabi Educational Authority. Uh, I think they've got a different name now, so that's the old name. Um, KHDA, I think, was in its infancy. That's the Dubai body. It was more schools in isolation. And during the time that I was there, I saw many, many changes, a lot more centralization um, in, in terms of expectations for schools trying to raise the quality of teaching and learning not just through inspection but also through the policies and the laws which which they had which I actually found a good thing because I had seen myself and had heard from colleagues that worked in other places 
that um, that this was required. Sometimes people don't always do the best things if they're not being held to account. So for, for me, those things were, were beneficial and I think that they improved the atmosphere for many teachers. It certainly had a greater impact, in my opinion, on children's learning because it was an expectation that greater investment needed to be made in resourcing the children and ensuring that teachers had PD. Of course, many schools were doing those things right already, but I think for those that were not, it really kind of set a, a good benchmark that, no, we all need to be aiming higher. So, um, yeah, I've seen a lot of change in, in the UAE. I think in the time that I lived in Abu Dhabi, I think there was like a 50% increase in the number of schools that went up there. Gosh, that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, it was, it was huge. I mean, at one point, it was it was difficult for people even to get their children in a school. I mean, there was huge weight in this. Um, so there was a great deal of, of expansion um, and offering of many different types of curriculum. British was the most popular, but also IB and, and American. So I worked at the Ministry of Education in my last role, which was a job I, I absolutely loved. I worked in as a curriculum developer for primary and early years. Um, and that was great working with local uh, practitioners um, and making sure that the curriculum was really adapted for our Arabic and Islamic students. So I really enjoyed that. From what I, I don't know very much about Riyadh because I've only been here a few months and I pretty much only am aware of Beach Hall. But what I would say the similarities are is that um, both ministries at least put a big emphasis on the importance of developing Arabic language and having a strong foundation in Islamic uh, knowledge and um, I suppose beliefs um, for those children who are Muslim. And um, both countries work towards visions, which I think is a nice way of getting everybody across different sectors working towards the same goals. So if I think about the Saudi vision, during our induction week, we actually had a look with our staff at the vision realization programs that you know were most closely aligned with the work that we do here at school um, and looking at how we could contribute in our small way um, towards you know the fulfillment of of those because you know sometimes these visions are very lofty but everybody in small incremental steps can can make a difference towards them and in terms of lifestyle just very briefly the differences between uae and the kingdom of saudi arabia in terms of lifestyle if I think about myself in UAE, of course, I would say that there was more leisure activities to do there because, you know, I was near the beach and um, yeah, I, was, I would say that it's more, it was more international, but it's lovely here. This, this, is, this is very much a very busy city. So I think if you enjoy going out and um, eating and um, going shopping, this is the place to be. I haven't really been outside of Riyadh, but... Um, a colleague of mine posted yesterday some of the beautiful places that there are in in Saudi. Like there's a place called the Edge of the World, which is out in the desert somewhere. And um, they've got the beautiful beaches of Jeddah and also Daman. I haven't been there yet, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a vast country. I think that there's lots to explore here. It's just that I haven't had the opportunity to get out and about as much as I would have liked. So much more to unpack, so much more to yes. explore. And actually, Claire, I wish we had more time to talk about that right now, but our time is coming to an end here. But before we do go, just tell us one thing that you enjoy doing when you're not in school. We've spoken a lot about school life and the academic side of, well, of, of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and UAE. 
What does Claire enjoy doing when when you're not in school? Well, I haven't done it for a while since I've got here, but I actually really love pottery. Um, I've been going to pottery lessons since 2008, and I absolutely love going to the studio, working with clay, creating something. It's just, it's so nice. It's such a restful and peaceful activity to work with the to work with the clay, to work with something which is natural. And of course, you know, we always have such a lovely group of people around and we always have a laugh. So yeah, that's what I like to do. Um, one of my big hobbies. Fantastic. I'm not even going to mention the film Ghost because there's a, there's a great <laughs> pottery scene in that. Um, but in the meantime, Claire, let's bring this to a close. But thank you so much for your time. It's been really good talking to you today. You too. Thank you, Simon. So that was Dr. Claire Lation, Director of Learning and Teaching at Beach Hall School Riyadh. Wasn't that good talking to her? Clearly someone who enjoys working in a school, exactly the right thing for her to be doing. Thank you, Claire, for your time, for being here today. I really enjoyed hearing from you. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.